As you're taking your seats, go ahead and grab your copy of God's Word and open up to the book of Ephesians chapter 3. As you're turning to Ephesians chapter 3, uh, just a reminder that we're jumping back into the book of Ephesians and we're kicking off a new mini-series this morning called God's Glory in Our Participation. Our overall ministry year theme is Soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. And what we see this morning as we look at chapter 3 in the book of Ephesians is that God actually receives much glory in us participating with him on his divinely given mission to reach the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is a unique and special experience and display of God's glory that we get to enjoy as we participate with God in his mission to reconcile the world to himself. There is mystery involved in this that Paul lays out for us this morning. And when you hear the word mystery, I wonder what that stirs in your heart and mind. There's something about mystery that is genuinely captivating to our hearts and to our imagination. There's something that's intriguing about the concept of mystery. Most of us tend to enjoy books or television shows or movies that have some level or degree of mystery that bring us in, that rope us into the story. And one of the great kind of masters of mystery in the film industry is J.J. Abrams. He's the creator of the show Lost, and he's done many other movies, and most of them involve an incredible level of mystery to them. When he was asked why he thinks humanity, human beings, are so captivated by mystery, This was his response. He said, mystery represents infinite possibility, potential, and hope. It demands our attention because it taps into the suspense, or excuse me, it taps into the suspense that taps into our inner longings for resolution. You see, while mystery thrives on suspense, one of the things that we have to recognize is that, generally speaking, there are a couple different kinds of suspense, and maybe I can illustrate that by just giving you two ways we see that. One is in movies. In movies, typically the suspense is what is going to happen. But when it comes to something like a television show, something that's a little more drawn out, oftentimes we know exactly what's going to happen, but the real suspense is how is it going to happen? How is this going to play out and unfold? Years ago, my wife and I got trapped into watching the show 24. Anybody with me there? You got roped in until it got really terrible after like the 10th season, right? In the show 24, I, I think one of the things that's interesting is it's got an incredible degree of suspense kind of woven into the story, but, but the suspense isn't driven by what is going to happen because everybody already knows. If you're watching the show 24, you already know Jack Bauer is going to save the day. You know what's going to happen. The only degree of suspense is how is he going to do this? I mean, what kind of ludicrous plan is he going to concoct and propose and come up with to try and fix the situation? The suspense that builds throughout the narrative of the Old Testament is much like that. You see, the people of God at the beginning of the scriptures, they know that God is going to redeem his creation but they don't know exactly how God's going to do it. They know that God is going to fix the brokenness of the world, the brokenness of the universe, and more specifically, the brokenness of the relationship between God and humanity. They simply don't know how exactly God is going to pull off this masterful plan. Our passage this morning, we see that Scripture not only acknowledges our fascination with mystery, 
It also points to the ultimate revelation. It points us to the greatest of mysteries unveiled. And that is what Paul is caught up with as we read chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. You'll notice that this concept of mystery is noted three times, and it really forms the heart of this passage. Let's read it together. Let's read the whole thing to get the big picture of what Paul is saying to us. He says this, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has been, now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Here Paul, in the first six verses in particular, wants to unfold for us the mystery, and that's what we see in our first point this morning, the mystery made known. Paul understands that it is essential for the church of Jesus Christ to have a firm grasp of this mystery that he has been unfolding and elaborating upon in the book of Ephesians. Now, let's remember that this letter was not written from a studio and for a stage, but was, it was written from a prison cell. Paul, right now, as he pens this letter, is sitting in a Roman prison. He is facing death. His enemies are out for him. And what does he say to the church? He says that they need to understand the mystery of Christ. That is of preeminent importance for the church. You see, this is not a fictional story for our entertainment. This is a narrative that is intended by God to truly change and transform us. So what is the mystery? Well, I think it's fair to say that this world is filled with many mysteries. The vastness of the universe the depths and wonders of the ocean, a woman's purse. <laughs> Many think that God is a mystery. You know, the Lord works in mysterious ways is probably the most famous verse that's not actually in the Bible. The book of Ephesians actually tells us the exact opposite of that. It tells us that God always works in accordance with his character as revealed in the scriptures and more specifically as revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, look again with me at verse 4 and verse 6. Paul says this, that when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was made known to the sons of men and was not made known to sons of men in other generations, and has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And then he goes on to tell us what exactly this mystery is. He says, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. 
You know, there's a sense in which you could sum up the mystery as simply being Christ. All that he is, all that he accomplished, and all that he is doing in the world. It is Christ that is at the very heart of this mystery. And again, Paul, in the first couple chapters, has actually been explaining this mystery and fleshing it out for us. In fact, in chapter 1, verse 8, remember what he said? He said this, he talks about how, The riches of his grace have been lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Listen to this in verse 9. Making known to us the mystery of his will. What was that? According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. Things in heaven and things on earth. You see, the great mystery that Paul has been unfolding is that God sees the broken world that we live in, the world that is cursed by sin from the very beginning, from the fall of Adam and Eve, the rupture that's taken place between God and humanity. He sees it all and God has a plan to reconcile all things on earth and in heaven back to himself. He's going to fix the brokenness of the world. And as Paul elaborates on this, he goes into chapter 2 and he tells us one of the greatest ways we see God already beginning this in Christ Jesus is in the church. He's taken two seemingly and humanly irreconcilable people groups, the Jews and the Gentiles. Remember the temple? The temple was structured in such a way so that only the Jews could enter into the presence of God fully in its fullest sense. The Gentiles were reserved to the outer courts of the temple. There was a separation, there was a barrier that existed between these two people groups. And Paul says in chapter 2 that that dividing wall has been broken down. And God instead has created one new man. He's brought the Jews and Gentiles together. So you can think of the church as being like a third race. No longer Jews, no longer Gentiles. There is only the new people of God. In verse 6 of chapter 3, He essentially just reiterates that. He says, this mystery is that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is staggering in the first century to Jews. You know, I've, uh, I've done a lot of flying. I've been on a lot of airplanes, done a lot of travel, and I think that airlines have done one of the most cruel and truly despicable things that can be done to humanity. Do you ever notice when you get on an airplane, you first get on and you walk through those big, plush, cushy seats? No, they're not even seats. They're seat beds. They recline all the way back, and if that's not bad enough, there are people who are already sitting there who have been given privileged access to come on board before you ever get the chance, and they're lying there watching a show or maybe even snoozing sipping a glass of champagne with their air conditioning blowing all over their face, and they smirk at you as you walk by to your cramped, stuffy little seat that may actually get taken away from you. And they've actually really helpfully categorized this place. They call it first class, right? And you go through first class to get to economy. Really, economy? We all know what that means. Second class, right? You're not worthy, right? Be gone, peasants. Get back to your second class seats, right? As if you forgot your place in the world. But when it comes to the church of Jesus Christ, one of the things Paul is intent on reminding us is that there are no second class citizens in God's kingdom. 
And God's family, listen, it doesn't matter who you are. We are all one and we are all equal in Jesus Christ. No more Jew, no more Gentile, no more male and female, no more slave or free. All are one in Christ. We all enjoy the same equality, the same privileges. There's nobody who is of higher importance or greater value. We are equal in God's family. Isn't that wonderful? And being one shows, listen, being one shows the reconciling power of Christ that will eventually reach the ends of the earth. God will take what is hostile and he will bring reconciliation and full-blown recreation of the universe so that it functions in perfect peace and harmony the way he designed it to be. We see the mystery is Jesus and his multi-ethnic people as the very means of uniting all things in Christ. But it's not a mystery as in we don't know what's going on here. You see, when we read through the scriptures, this side of the cross, we are not in the dark as to whether or not God loves us. We're not questioning what God is going to do, if he's going to do something about the brokenness of the world. We know that he is. It's not only that the mystery has been revealed, Paul wants to make it clear that it had to be revealed. In fact, verse 5 reminds us that this was something that had been previously hidden or concealed in previous generations that God has only now revealed in its fullness through the holy apostles and prophets. In other words, this side of the cross in the New Testament era, the New Covenant era, God has revealed in fullness to the church his plan of redemption. Part of what Paul is communicating to us through the Holy Spirit is this, that you would never have figured this out on your own and that you needed God to reveal it to you. you know, some of you, you like to watch movies and figure out the entire plot within the first three minutes of the movie and then try and spoil it for everybody else, right? Here's what's going to happen, this is going to happen, this is going to happen next, and then it's going to end just like this, killing it for all of us who actually like to watch the plot unfold in real time. But Paul is saying when it comes to the plan of redemption that God has been unfolding, this is something you could have never have predicted. You would have never figured it out on your own. You were completely and wholly dependent upon God's revelation for you to understand it. You see, we would never have predicted that God would overcome the world through weakness. We would never have figured out that God would triumph through defeat. We would never have thought that he would become king by first becoming a servant. We never would have guessed that he would reclaim all by giving all. The gospel is so counterintuitive to our human inclinations. It's strange to the wisdom of the world. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that the wisdom of God is foolishness to the world. They look at this and say, that's a crazy plan. That's a crazy idea. Who would believe such a thing? And yet God says this is his very wisdom. And we're reminded that, that this mystery is not a code to be cracked. It is a message to be received. And that God is not keeping secrets from us, and there are no higher levels within Christianity where you are spiritually advancing up the ladder, but God has made plain and revealed all. He's opened it for all to see. There's no question as to why God is doing what he's doing, because we live in a broken world that's cursed by sin. 
There's no question as to who is, was and is that can fix the problem. It's Jesus Christ, and there's no question as to how he's going to do it. He had to hang on a cross and pay for the sins of the world and rise from the grave, conquering sin and death, so that he could be the reconciling force that brings all things back together. The only question is, what will we do with it, and how will we live in light of it? You see, the mystery has been made known so that we can now be making known the mystery. That's the second point this morning. And in verse 7 through 9, that's Paul's point. He wants to drive this idea into us that now that God has made it known to us, we have the unique opportunity to make known the mystery to others. His concern turns to what this means for him personally, his personal ministry the call of God on his life, and by extension, we need to look at what this means for us and for our lives and for our ministries. Making known the mystery is seen, I think, in three ways that will be helpful for us this morning. The first is this, understanding a a definitive mission. That God has given to us in Christ a definitive mission. It is not unclear. It's not ambiguous. It's a divine mission with a divine mandate, and it comes, as Paul tells us in verse 7, with divine empowerment. Verse 7 says, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. Paul certainly here is referring back, as he has in verses 1 through 6, to his own conversion experience, where he experienced the very power of God to open his blind eyes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. On the road to Damascus, he was arrested by the glory of Jesus Christ who confronted him in his sin and his rebellion as he was persecuting the church of Jesus Christ. It was this power of God that removed the scales from his eyes. It was the power of God that opened his mind to understand the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it was the power of the living God, the spirit of God inside him that enabled him to then go and live out this mission that was given to him to reach the Gentiles. Verse eight, he makes it clear that this mission was to be a preacher of the gospel to the Gentiles. What Christ had accomplished, Paul was called to proclaim. I love the phrase he uses in verse 8, the unsearchable riches of Christ. One of the things we remember is that it didn't happen right here. In fact, Paul's call happened decades before this. And yes, in one sense, the calling of Paul to be an apostle to the Gentiles is a unique and special calling to him. But at the same time, there is certainly application to us. You see, God always, when he calls people, he calls every person first to himself. And as he calls us to himself and we place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, he calls us to his mission to go unto all nations and make disciples. And then in that, he'll often give us unique and special callings unique to our giftedness, unique to our passions and desires as God directs our paths as we submit ourselves and those passions and desires to Him. The question for us this morning is this, are we being faithful to the call that God has given us? Are you as an individual this morning, follower of Christ, being faithful to the call that God has given specifically to you? Are you on mission This is so important in our culture that seems to struggle with sticking with something for an extended period of time 
enduring and pushing through difficulty. I was looking up some statistics earlier this week about kind of job turnover and the amount of jobs you can expect to have in your lifetime, and it broke it down into categories based on the generation that you were born in. And you know, a number of generations ago, my, my parents and even my grandparents' generation, it wasn't uncommon for them to have one career and one job for their entire life, or at least maybe one, two, maybe three at the most. As time has progressed in the last few generations, and with every increasing generation, they say you can expect to have more and more jobs in your lifetime. Right now, the average statistic for Canadians is that you can expect to have 15 jobs in your adult life. When it comes to the job that God has given us to be on mission for Jesus Christ, it never changes. We are called to make disciples As Eugene Peterson so helpfully says, discipleship is a long obedience in the same direction. We keep after it. We keep our heads down. You know, we keep keep going at it as hard as it may be, as difficult as it can get. We keep going for the cause of Christ. So let me ask you, are you willing to be faithful and to endure in the call and the definitive mission that Jesus has given to us? Secondly, in making known the mystery, we need a humble ambition. Once we've got the mission clarified, we need to understand that this requires of us a humble ambition to carry it out. I love verses 8 and 9. We see this really staggering combination of humility and ambition paired together. Paul says that this call to be a minister of the gospel was given to him, look at this, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints... He says, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. He says, I I was the least of the least. And yet, look what God has called me to. I mean, how humble of Paul to recognize who he was. And maybe you're reading this and you're saying, well, surely Paul is using a little bit of hyperbole. I mean, he is a preacher after all, right? This is exaggeration, isn't it? Paul didn't really believe he was the worst of the worst. When Paul looked at his life, he really genuinely believed he was the least of all the saints. This is not a sort of false humility or or a sort of humble brag. You know, we're all familiar with those two things. We've all seen and experienced false humility before. I mean, mean, imagine someone won an award. Let's pick an athlete. And uh, they won the most valuable player award in the NHL, and they're getting their award. And then you walked up to them afterwards and said, you know what? You are an amazing hockey player. I said, no, I'm really not that good. Like, yes, you are. And you're a liar, right? Like, it's, that's, that's false humility. But Paul is not giving us an example of some kind of a humble brag either, where he's glorying in his lowly position as if it's a, a badge of honor for him. There's no sense of Paul saying, yeah, you know, I'm really not that important. I only wrote like half the New Testament. I mean, the Spirit helped a little bit, but this is genuine, authentic humility. So how how can Paul say this? And is it possible for us to say something like this? The answer to both those questions, I think, is yes. See, Paul knows who he was before Christ. He knows that he was a man who was dedicating his life to persecuting Christians, but Paul would look at you in the eye and say, don't you understand? I was trying to destroy the Christian faith. I was an enemy of God. I was trying to kill people and imprison people who faithfully followed the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Can you believe that? How despicable, how awful. And he recognizes the brokenness from which he came. And I think this is going to be true of all of us. If we're honest with who we were before Christ in our rebellion against God, we too can look at our lives and say, I am the least. I am so undeserving of the grace of God. And this is not mere self-deprecation. Notice that he calls himself the least of all the saints. He's not wallowing in his shame He's not a man who walks around with his head hanging low. Woe is me. I can do nothing for Christ. That's not Paul's attitude or spirit at all. He knows who he is in Christ. He knows who he was before Christ, but he knows who he is in Christ. He's a saint. He is one of the holy ones of God, made righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. This is genuine humility. And let me just define this for us. Listen, genuine humility isn't beating yourself up before God. It's lifting up God and rightly seeing yourself before him. Let me say that again. Genuine humility is not beating yourself up before God. It's lifting up God and rightly seeing yourself before him. Paul was such a master at this. And don't miss the connection that he makes here between the depths of God's grace and the depths of his own personal humility. You see, in magnifying ourselves, we minimize God. The more you're consumed with yourself and your own glory, your own reputation, your own accomplishments, the bigger you make yourself out to be in your own eyes. Listen, the smaller you make God out to be. Paul understood this in his life, and so he looks at his life and says, I was nobody, I was nothing, I was the worst of the worst, but God's grace shows me how mighty and magnificent and kind he has been to me. You see, in magnifying God, we rightly see ourselves. And Paul is humble, but his humility, I love this, it doesn't keep him from being ambitious. He goes on to say, did you notice this? That he's called to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. Look at verse 9. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. That's an ambitious goal. Paul wanted to reach everyone with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like, well, easy there, big fellow. You're in prison. Like, that's a, that's a little bit big goal. Maybe you should downsize that goal a little bit, Paul. But what you, one of the things you need to see with Paul is this. No, he was so ambitious. He knew the gospel was good news for everyone, and he wanted everyone to know it. He devoted his entire life to telling the gospel, preaching the gospel to as many people as he could. Paul is incredibly ambitious. Now, I know that there are some people in this room who are just very naturally ambitious. You are ambitious to the core. You thrive on setting goals and strategic plans, and you got these massive goals that everybody thinks you're crazy for having, and yet you go after them with such tenacity and ferociousness. But as Christians, we know the Bible prizes humility. And we can often experience in our minds a tension between these two because we think that they're actually in contrast to one another. So often we become what we think is humble. We hang our heads low and we do the, oh, I can't do anything for the Lord. You know, woe is me. And as a result, we end up accomplishing nothing for the Lord. But you see, the problem isn't our ambition, it's our arrogance. 
There is nothing biblically wrong with ambition. In fact, I think Paul is demonstrating that it is incredibly important to have a holy ambition. So there's nothing wrong, you see, with ambition if it's for God's glory and not your own. There's nothing wrong with ambition if it's for the expansion of God's kingdom and not the expansion of your kingdom. There is nothing wrong with you working hard, with devoting time and energy to your goals, so long as your ultimate goal is to bring glory and honor to Jesus Christ. Humility rightly directs ambition. It does not destroy it. It fuels a kind of holy ambition. In fact, we should be ambitious for the things of the Lord. You should be zealous for the things of the Lord. There's so much to be done for Jesus Christ. And we have, as Paul has made clear, the very power of the living God within us who enables us to accomplish all that God has called us to. William Carey, the father of modern missions, once said it like this, and I think it accurately summarizes what Paul is living out. He said this, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. Expect, in other words, that God's power is going to mightily work through you to accomplish above and beyond what you could ever think or imagine is possible. And if you truly believe that and expect that from God, you will get after the things of the Lord. You will attempt great things for God, things that people think you're crazy for doing. Now listen, Paul's ambition was to reach everyone, and there is a sense, listen, in which that too should be our ambition. We should want to reach everyone with the gospel of Jesus Christ, but, but that's a really lofty goal. So let's just give it a, a bite-sized goal for us this morning. Do you have an ambition to reach anyone? Do you this morning have an ambition to reach someone? And this is, I, I really think we need to take some of the things out of the ambiguous realm and, and make them more concrete. And I do this often, and I'm not afraid to do it every single week, just so that we can take what we know theoretically and theologically and make it practical in our lives. Listen, who is the someone in your life right now that you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is laying on your heart to reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Put a name to it right now. Put a face to it. See their face right now in your mind's eye. See that person and realize that that person is lost and without hope in this world because they don't know Jesus Christ. Listen, and make it your holy ambition by the grace of God with the power of the Holy Spirit to preach the gospel to that person and to believe with expectation that God is going to do above and beyond what you think is possible. Listen, leave the results to God, but you be faithful. You be faithful to preach and to do what God has called you to do, to participate in the way that God has called you to participate so that he might receive maximum glory. We need a humble ambition, and thirdly, we need a privileged position. Just really quickly, I I think... Paul displays this so beautifully for us. He he sees this commission or ministry and he regards it as such an enormous privilege. Did you notice that twice now he's talked about this as being according to the gift of God's grace? See that in verse 7? Verse 8, he reiterates this, this grace was given to me. You know, Paul views his commissioning as a minister of the gospel, listen, as a privilege, In spite of the fact that he was the very least of the saints, he speaks of the stewardship of God's grace. He knows he will be held accountable to the Lord. He knows he will stand before his king and his master. 
But can you just see Paul saying, look, look, my opportunity to preach the gospel is such a privilege. I mean, who am I that God would allow me this privilege of proclaiming the gospel to a bunch of people who are lost and dead in their sin? And I look, listen, we need to change our language on this. Sometimes when we start thinking about evangelism, here's how we think, oh, I have to evangelize that person. I know I really should. And you know, here's how our language, you know, it's not that you have to, and it's not that you should, it's that you get to. You have been given an understanding of the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ in the gospel. And now God says, listen, I could do this by shouting it from the heavens. I could send angels to do this, but instead I've allowed you to participate with me in this mission. You get to be my mouthpiece in this world. You get to take what has just changed your life and you get to go and share it with people. The thing that should be most passionately embraced in your heart is the thing you should be most passionately declaring to the world. We live in a privileged moment this side of the cross. Paul tells us that these things were once hidden for ages with a God who created all things, but now God is displaying these truths, this side of the cross, what a privilege to live here and now. Listen, the saints of old, Moses, Abraham, David, Elijah, Ezekiel, all of the saints of old would have longed for the day that we live in. Do you know that? What is needed today for recovery of our evangelistic zeal and passion is this same kind of apostolic conviction about the gospel and the privilege of knowing and proclaiming it. See, once we are sure that the gospel is both truth from God and it is unsearchable riches of God's grace for humanity, nobody will be able to silence us. And if we are not silent, it leads us to this third point, truly knowing the mystery. Truly, genuinely knowing the mystery. And I don't mean that knowing intellectually, I mean it knowing experientially to be brought into this magnificent plan to know the joy and the sacrifice, to know the blessings and the hardships, to know and experience the results. See, verses 11 through 13, in one sense, is all about living this out and experiencing it to the fullest, displaying the power and the results of this mystery of Christ. It's incredible what he says here in verse 10. He says, so that through the church... The manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This mystery has been revealed and God wants it to be implemented and broadcasted through the church. The church is the redeemed people of God. Those who are called according to his purposes and those who are used for his good purposes. You know, the major lesson that's taught to us in the first half of the book of Ephesians uh, 3 is the biblical centrality of the church. God's purposes, we learn from this one verse, verse 10, are as wide as creation, as wide as the cosmos, and yet they are focused in and through the church of Jesus Christ. You see, the church is central in world history. I just want you to consider this for a moment. It's what God is using to reconcile the world to himself. God is not going to use government to reconcile the world to himself. He's not going to use just a few dynamic individuals. He's certainly not going to use Hollywood. He's not going to go through some other social organization or institution, no matter how well-intentioned they may be. He has chosen to use the church of Jesus Christ to change and transform the world. The church... And you just think through history, 
Nations and regimes and dictators, kings and governments, they rise and they fall on cue. But the church of the living God endures forever. It has to, because Jesus promised that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. The church is to be a showcase of God's character and power in the world that is filled with hostility and hurt. You see, the church is central to the gospel. You never walk into somebody's house, I hope, and uh, look up on their wall and say, wow, that is an incredibly beautiful picture frame. If they do, you need to consider changing the picture. See, the frame has one purpose. It's to frame in, to put on display something more beautiful and more meaningful and more valuable at the center. And that's exactly the purpose of the church of Jesus Christ. We frame in the beauty and the value and the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. We put his character and his reconciling work on full display in how we live in the gospel It is this multi-ethnic people of God that is a microcosm, listen, of what God is going to do in this broken universe. He's going to take this ragtag bunch of people who are strangers and aliens, not just to one another, but to him, who are hostile against him, and he is going to bring peace and unity and harmony once again. You see, we, the church, give a glimpse of what life can be under the reign of God and what one day will be. God wants us, the church, to be an exhibit to all of what he is like, of his power and ability to change lives. You say, well, that doesn't really sound like the churches I've been a part of. It certainly doesn't paint the picture that I've seen in, in most Christians that I know. They're not really doing this. They're not really manifesting the character and glory of God. We see Paul's letters show us that he knows The church is a dysfunctional and imperfect institution. He knows that. I mean, just read 1 Corinthians. Paul's under no illusion that the church is not perfect. And yet God says that, listen, even in our brokenness, I would argue because of our brokenness and imperfection, he is able to show his character in such a magnificent way. You see, if we were perfect, we're close, right? Yeah, right. If we were perfect, we would be able to show that God is holy. But because we are broken, Because we are flawed and sinful and continually in process, we get to continually put on display not just that God is perfect because we are not. We get to show the world that God is gracious. We get to show the world that God is forgiving. We get to show the world that God is compassionate. We get to show the world that God is sacrificial. We get to show the world that God is generous and kind. We get to show the world what forgiveness looks like and restoration and reconciliation. You see the picture our brokenness can show to the world if we live according to God's word here? The grace that ought to permeate this place and the power of God that ought to permeate this place shows the world the hope of healing that can only be found in Christ and that will one day be seen in the entire universe. It says here in verse 10 that through the church, he shows the world, notice these words, his manifold wisdom. Have you ever caught yourself saying or thinking something like, well, if I were God, I would do it like this. Or if, if I were God, I would never let that happen, or I would change that, and I wouldn't have done that like that. You know, in our pride, sometimes we believe we're smarter than God. 
We believe we would have done better than God in our sinful, foolish pride. And can you imagine a child in the backseat of their car trying to tell their parent how they're supposed to be driving? Some of you already have this. 10 and 2, mom. You're in the wrong Use your blinker if you're going to turn there, mom. I mean, these are the right directions, mom. You don't know what you're doing, mom. And you're like, be quiet, you're two. Stick to messing up your diaper and sucking your thumb. You're much better at that. That's not the way a parent, don't worry. And we need to remember that the wisdom of God and wisdom in general is not just knowledge. It's knowledge applied. So to say that God is wise is saying that he's not just intelligent, but that he knows and always does what is best and right. Wisdom is when you know all the different factors involved and make the best decision in light of it. That's pure wisdom. When you know every conceivable option and you choose what is best And just think about how wise God is. Right now at this very moment, God knows every factor and every variable for every circumstance and situation in the universe without exception perfectly. Think about how wise he is. He knows every thought and intention of your heart at this very moment. He knows everything going on in your life, let alone in the universe. He knows your past. He knows your future. He knows every fact and variable involved, and he reigns in it all supremely right now at this moment. Every decision he makes is the right one, without exception. He is infinitely wise, and therefore, he deserves our complete and total trust. That's what our response is supposed to be to God's wisdom. It is to be unhindered trust. This is what it means to truly know the mystery. It means to live a life of faith and trusting that God is always doing what's best, no matter what circumstances may appear. It means I'm going to put my faith in him and believe that he's doing what is right and what's ultimately best for me. And in God's wisdom in the church and choosing the way to do the way he's done things, he is desiring to put his manifold wisdom on display in such a perfect way. The idea of manifold means it's many parts like a diamond that can only be appreciated from many angles. But did you notice, look at the verse, look at verse 10. Did you notice who this wisdom is for ultimately? It's a staggering reality. He says that this manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. You say, who's that? It's the supernatural realm. It's to the good and the evil supernatural beings that are involved and caught up in this cosmic warfare that's being waged all around us. It's all of those angels, as we call them, those supernatural beings who serve God and who minister to us on behalf of God, who are messenger beings on his part. And it is also for the demons who rebelled against God, who are living in disordered and usurped roles of authority right now in this world, the God of this world, Satan himself. And what God is doing in the church is a message to not just the physical world, it is a message to the spiritual realm, where God is looking, he's saying, listen, I will do what I promised to do. You know, it's amazing to think about. The angels had no clue how God was going to make this happen. They were completely caught off guard with the incarnation of of God in Christ Jesus. They were completely caught off guard when it came to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You say, well, why would God withhold that to good angels? 
I think the same reason he withholds it to people like us. Because these beings, they stand in the presence of God and they worship him and they glorify his name. And you want to know what happens when they see the majesty and the magnificence of the plan of God unfold right before their very eyes? Tell me that doesn't just lift and heighten their praises back to God. But to those demonic beings, I mean, you have to believe that this, this is not creating praise. This is creating fear and trembling in those who rebel against God and who rebelled against him. He's a demons here and they see and they shudder. The power of the blood of Jesus, the foolishness of the world to triumph and redeem humanity causes these demons to shudder. And in verse 11 through 13, Paul closes in telling them that this was all, verse 11, according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is always the plan. God was not surprised by sin. God always had planned that Jesus would be the one who would reconcile a broken world back to himself. And in that reconciliation, verse 12 highlights for us the most intimate part of that. In whom we have boldness and access and confidence through our faith in him. This picture of restored relationship. Again, remember that picture we saw in the Old Testament. Now, only the priest, the high priest, could draw near to the Holy of Holies, the most intimate dwelling place of God in the temple. He alone had access to the Holy of Holies once a year. No one else could go in with the threat and punishment of death. But the Word of God tells us that we have a great high priest named Jesus Christ. He entered into the Holy of Holies, and he made a sacrifice for sins to end all sacrifices for sins. And in doing so, he restores us back to God. And the staggering reality of this verse is really seen again in chapter 2, verse 18, where he says this, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Again, remember, this is so staggering. Jews and Gentiles both have the same unhindered access. They approach God the same way through Christ Jesus. They have the same status as children of God. And this, too, is how we draw near to God. We go to our Father in confidence through Jesus Christ. Faith that he paid the penalty for our sins. Faith that he rose from the grave, defeating sin and death. Faith that God no longer holds our sins against us because they have been paid in full in Jesus Christ. Faith that we are received because we are robed in the precious and perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And now that means, of course, that our mission to reach the nations will be stress-free and difficulty-free and pain-free. Amen? Yeah, good. Good. You caught that. No. No, no. The Bible doesn't teach that if you follow Jesus, everything's just going to get better, that your life's going to be you know, happy, healthy, and wealthy. Look what Paul says in verse 13 about his own life. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. He comes back full circle to where, from where he started, where he's at and what he's enduring. You see, the structure of this passage is so fascinating. In verse 1, he talks about how he is a prisoner. Notice that. But notice, not of Rome, but of Christ Jesus. And then you get 
Here, he, by the way, in verse 1, it looks like he's going in one direction. Do you notice that? For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you, the Gentiles. And then all of a sudden, in verse 2, he shifts gears, and he goes in a completely new direction. It's a divine digression. He's just like, hold on, I, I, I got to get to something else for a moment. And then you notice back in 14, he picks back up where, what he was going to say at the beginning of, third, of verse 1. For this reason, he's going to go into his prayer. This is a spirit-inspired rabbit trail, but this isn't rambling here. This is just the opposite. You see, what's going on is so important in the mind of Paul. He has been reminding them of the cosmic implications of the gospel, and then Paul thinks, wait a second, I'm telling them all of these glories of the unsearchable riches of Christ, of the unity in the body and the power that's been given, but maybe they're going to have a really difficult time fathoming this when they look at my situation and remember that I'm in prison and I've been suffering for Jesus Christ. And we know that many of them were despairing over what Paul was going through. So he goes down this rabbit trail, listen, this is so important, so that they know, listen, they know how much he's suffered, he knows that, but he goes down this trail so that they know, and he needs to remind them that God is sovereign over all things, even our suffering. He's honest about his own sufferings, he's not hiding them. But one of the things he's very clear about is he is not a prisoner to Rome, he is a prisoner to Christ Jesus. And in essence, here's what he's saying, he says, listen, I know what you're seeing is suffering and pain and difficulty and trial. But you need to understand that I'm not living in my circumstances primarily. I live in a much deeper reality than that. You see, I'm in Christ Jesus. And if I'm in Christ Jesus and I know that that's where my identity is, if I know that that's where my joy is, then this is what I know. In Christ Jesus, listen, that's a much deeper reality than being in prison. I'm in Christ Jesus, and that's a much deeper reality than being, listen, in the hospital. I'm in Christ Jesus, and that's a much deeper reality than being in pain. I'm in Christ Jesus, and that's a much deeper reality than being in crisis. I'm in Christ Jesus, and that is a much deeper reality than being in despair. And you see, Paul demonstrates for us that he has an unflinching belief in the sovereignty of God, not, listen, not in spite of his sufferings, but especially in his suffering. He knows that all of his life, even wrongful incarceration and suffering, pain, and enduring that, all of this is under the sovereign hand of God. In fact, he knows that his suffering is one of the very things God is using to keep the gospel moving forward. And I know, listen, I know we can be tempted, and many of you maybe are already experiencing in this place a sense of disheartened, heartbrokenness, despair. Maybe you're being tempted right now to feel disheartened because of suffering that you're experiencing in this life, because of sin, and maybe because of what others have done, just maybe the suffering of physical pain, maybe the suffering of emotional pain. Maybe right now you're suffering relational brokenness. Maybe you're suffering the pain of loneliness. Maybe you're suffering the pain of loss or grief. But can you hear Paul say, as he talks about his own suffering, that it was not without purpose? He says it was for you, which is your glory. It's for their glory. All of his suffering was so that they might be reached in the first place with the gospel. 
All of his suffering was so that they might be refreshed by his example of endurance in the face of incredible hardship. All of his suffering was so that they might be reminded, listen, that this life is not all there is. There are ways for all those who suffer for Christ Jesus in indescribable glory. Be a follower of Christ is not often an easy road. It's often a very hard road, but it is a road that leads us to glory. You see, suffering isn't the place to question God's sovereignty. It's the place to cling to it. God is mighty to save, and Paul is reminding them in a very hard place personally. Listen, I believe God is mighty to save. I believe God will rescue. I believe God's purposes will be fulfilled. I know God will use my suffering and my pain so that it will bless and benefit you and countless others. And you know, as we look at this, we're reminded that God has acquainted himself with suffering, isn't he? And we know that God enters into our suffering and he gives us comfort amidst our suffering. So maybe the real question we need to ask in our suffering is this, do we really believe God is wise enough to have good reasons for our suffering? Do we really believe that they can serve a good and even greater purpose that we can't see sometimes? Do we really believe that God is working all things, all things, together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose, even our pain and suffering? Our problem with this is generally not an intellectual one. It's really not. It's really usually a heart issue. See, our struggle with this and our struggle with the concept of suffering in this world has a way of actually revealing our false expectations of God. See, suffering isn't a reminder of God's absence. It's a reminder of God's purposes. It's a reminder that God has something far greater for us in suffering that he could not do otherwise. And if you doubt that, Paul is saying, just look at me. Just look at me. And if you struggle even as you look at Paul, maybe you could do this this morning. Just look at Jesus. Just look at Jesus. The cross always had to come before the crown. Suffering always had to come before glory. And this morning we look to the one who suffered infinitely more, listen, than we could ever imagine so that we might receive infinitely more than we deserve. Glory. Glory. We get glory because he suffered for us. The cross is the greatest sign we have that God is for us and with us, especially in the midst of our suffering. The mystery has been revealed through Christ and through his church. Jesus is accomplishing his purposes. And our response is to trust him, to live in light of all that he's given us in the gospel. For some of you, the call for you this morning is to truly trust in Christ for the first time. See that he suffered for you. He suffered in your place. He hung on a piece of wood. He took upon himself the punishment for your sins that you deserve. He suffered the very wrath of God so that you could be given the righteousness of Christ and that you could live with him in perfect, reconciled relationship for all eternity in glory. 
He calls you this morning. He says, come to me. Come to me. Drop all of your ways of trying to get to me. Drop all of your ways of trying to figure it out. I've made it known to you this morning. I've revealed it plainly to you. Now bow your knee to me and call me your king. Give me your life and find that you will receive it back. Magnify beyond your wildest imagination. For those of us who are in Christ this morning, listen, this is a call to continually go deeper into the unsearchable, indescribable riches of Jesus Christ. The inexhaustible wealth that is ours in Christ to daily dive deeper into Him. And regardless of what we're facing in this life, we can look at Paul this morning and we can look at Jesus on the cross And we can hear the call of Paul to not lose heart, keep going, endure. God is faithful. God is doing what only he can do, but he's called you in the process, and he will use you mightily as you submit to him.